Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. There's been a lot of volatility in the stock market since I reported my last podcast on Friday. In fact, on Monday, the tech stocks in particular got beaten up. The Nasdaq dropped by better than 150 points, led lower by the so-called FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Google and uh, Facebook, the biggest drop, I think it was something like 6 to 8%. I forget the exact percentage. Part of that, of course, had to do with the Justice Department uh, investigating uh, Google. Of course, I don't think that we should be involved at all in this antitrust. Almost all of the companies that have been broken up or that have been put through the ringer by the U.S. government achieved whatever type of market dominance they had based on uh, you know, just being good competitors, delivering the best quality at the lowest price, and government just came in, and really what they were doing was advocating for uh, competitors that were having a problem competing. It wasn't because the consumer was getting ripped off. In general, the consumer was being rewarded uh, with low prices and high quality, but uh, companies that couldn't compete, since they couldn't win in the marketplace, they enlisted the power of government uh, to work for them. So government really is not about preventing monopolies, they create monopolies. The government comes into a market and legally gives a company a monopoly and then uses the power of government to make sure that nobody competes. Uh, this is all a bunch of nonsense that we need government to keep the markets free. The markets will stay free. It's government that comes in and corrupts the markets. But I don't really want to get into that today on this podcast. I've got too much to talk about. I don't want to make this really an antitrust podcast. But just to say that that is one of the reasons uh, that uh, some of these stocks were under a lot of pressure. But in general, if you look at what was happening to the markets on Monday, there was a huge movement uh, from growth stocks, right? Momentum stocks, speculative stocks, riskier stocks to defensive stocks, value-oriented stocks, because the Dow Jones was actually positive on the day. It wasn't up a lot, but it was up, uh, even though you had a 150-point drop in the, uh, in the NASDAQ. And I think that is an important key because this is something that needs to happen, and it's long overdue that investors start to get more defensive in anticipation of a weakening economy. And you have all of these high multiple stocks, their PEs are going to have to come down to earth. And of course, people are looking at a slowing economy. They are looking at lower interest rates. They believe they're going to get lower interest rates. So it makes sense that dividend-paying stocks would be more attractive in a falling rate environment because now you have higher income coming from those stocks. So we saw that kind of shift. And it wasn't that it was happening just in the stock market. I think in general, you know, I've talked about uh, Bitcoin recently on this program. You know, the price of Bitcoin 
had shot up recently. In fact, it got as high as over $9,000 a Bitcoin just very recently. But it fell back sharply from those highs on Monday. In fact, it fell again Tuesday, and I think it's down again today. We're trading around 7700 as I speak. I think we saw it get as low as around 7400 So that was a pretty big decline in uh, the price of Bitcoin. Well, at the same time, the price of gold has been steadily moving higher. In fact, gold is now up six consecutive sessions. In fact, in the last five sessions alone, the price of gold is up 50 bucks, And that includes uh, the big sell-off that we had today off the highs. Now, we closed up about $5, 1330 uh, for the price of gold. But we got up to almost 1345 I think maybe 1343 or so might have been about the high before the market turned back. It, it makes sense. We know we have a lot of resistance up around 1350 And so if you have a $65 rise in the price of gold in five days, you're bound to have some profit taking. You're also bound to have some people taking a shot on the short side because they figure it's a low risk short. They could put their stop maybe above 1350 and maybe try to catch a bigger move. Uh, I, f I have a feeling that that was going on, but I think it's a healthy pullback. And I think the next time we get up around that resistance, we could end up going through it like a hot knife uh, through butter. But part of the catalyst for the rise in the price of gold is the same catalyst for the rebound that we've had in stocks. Because over the last two days, the NASDAQ has rallied back better than 200 points. And in fact, the Dow Jones was up better than 500 points yesterday, tacked on another 200 points today. Why is this happening? Well, because the Federal Reserve brought out the big guns, right? Up until yesterday, you had had you know, various Fed officials kind of beating around the bush or hinting at the fact that, well, maybe we're going to have a rate cut. Well, yesterday morning, the big man, Jerome Powell, came out and basically opened the door wide for a rate cut. And in fact, if you look at the probabilities now, I think there's about a 33% probability that the Fed cuts rates this month, the next time it meets later in June, and the probabilities are even higher that the Fed cuts rates in, in September. And in fact, one of the reasons that the probability even shot up a little bit more this morning was the horrific number we got from the ADP uh, on private payroll employment. Remember, we get this number uh, every Wednesday of the week where we get the, uh, the government non-farm payroll number, which is coming out on Friday. Now, we had a very strong number for the month of April. It was 275,000 jobs. So that was a big number. And the consensus was for a 175,000 jobs for May, which would have been a 100,000 uh, lower, a more normal month. Well, they revised the past month down slightly, 271,000, still a big number. But the main number came out at just 27,000 jobs. Uh, that is the worst number, the smallest uh, growth in ADP uh, employment in nine years, right? I mean, Trump is out there talking about how we've got the strongest economy ever, yet we just printed the weakest uh, private employment growth in nine years. You know, if you break the report down, it gets even worse. If you look at small business, Small businesses lost 52,000 jobs for the month. And then if you look at the goods producing, manufacturing, 
they shed 43,000 jobs. And of course, we normally add a bunch of jobs in the service sector, and we did, but it was only 71,000 jobs net in the service sector. But of course, of course, I'm sure the service sector jobs that we added did not pay nearly as much as the manufacturing jobs that we lost. So this number came out early in the morning before the stock market opened. And in fact, that number prompted the gold market to move to new highs on the day, up about 18 bucks or so before it pulled back a bit. But that really sent the expectations for a June rate cut higher. Now, we did get um, some mixed numbers on uh, the service sector economy that came out later in the day. We met estimates of a very, very weak uh, service sector PMI. I think this is a three-year low in that number. Uh, Prior month was at 53. The expectation was for a drop down to 50.9, and that's exactly what we got. But where we got a better than expected number, and I think this hurt the gold rally today and maybe helped the dollar, which gotten beat up pretty bad on Monday and Tuesday. We finally had a bit of a rally in the dollar today, and this might have been the catalyst. It was the ISM non-manufacturing number, which was supposed to come out at 55.8, and they came out at 56.9, so a, a better number there. The market seemed to be focusing on the better number and ignoring all of the weaker numbers, although I think there was... Some rumors that came out today, maybe some uh, White House official talking about maybe we're going to have some kind of positive resolution to the trade tensions with Mexico uh, on Thursday. I doubt anything substantive is going to happen, but it doesn't stop the markets from reacting to those rumors. But needless to say, the economic numbers continue to get weaker. But the real cause of the rally was the Fed chairman himself and, and the words that he chose. I mean, one of the things that he said specifically to alleviate the concerns that the market had was that he stood ready to do whatever was appropriate to keep this expansion going. And so if there's a problem that is created by the tariffs, well, the Fed is going to be there. The Fed's got our back, right? Don't worry. If anything goes wrong, if the economy starts to slow down, the Fed is going to do what's appropriate. Now, of course, nothing the Fed does is appropriate. But what is Powell referring to? Well, What can the Fed do? They can lower interest rates and they can print money. They can buy government bonds. They can stop the quantitative tightening and they can do the quantitative easing. And that's exactly what is going to happen. The Fed is going to cut rates and they're going to do more QE. Now, they're not even talking about more QE yet. They're just kind of talking about reducing rates. But in fact, they're not even specifically saying that. What Powell said is he's going to do what's necessary. He's going to do what's appropriate. He wants to keep this expansion going. Now, of course, the problem is the expansion is phony. The expansion is a bubble. So what Powell is really saying is, I'm going to do whatever I can to keep blowing air in this bubble. And if the air starts to come out, I'm going to do whatever I can to force more in, right? But that's not a good thing. If you have a bubble and it's deflating, that is a positive development. It's the inflation of the bubble that's the problem. When you deflate the bubble, you're beginning the solution. But the solution is painful, right? Just like, you know, if you're addicted to drugs, right? When you kick the habit, that, that's the good thing. That's progress. And now you go through withdrawal. Well, that's a healthy sign of, you know, detox. But what um, Powell is promising is, no, no, no. We, we want to keep everybody high as a kite. 
And if it looks like anybody's coming down, well, we're going to make sure to give you a fix. That's basically what he's saying. Now, of course, that's what the stock market wants to hear, right? They don't care about the long-term consequences of these drugs. They just want to know that they're going to get them. And so the market reacted positively to those statements. But nothing that the Fed is doing is appropriate. The Fed is resisting the cure by infecting the market with a larger dose of the disease. Because if Powell keeps the expansion going, he only does it by adding more debt. He only does it by encouraging businesses, individuals, and governments to take on even more debt. Remember, I spoke about the irony of this on a previous podcast where the Fed was warning about the fact that corporations had too much debt. Well, they only have too much debt because the Fed kept interest rates so low. Well, now they're saying that they're going to lower them again so that the very overly indebted corporations could take on even more debt. How is that possibly the solution? If we have too much debt, adding more debt doesn't solve anything. All that does is make the problem worse. But what it can do is kick the can down the road. Because if you're broke and in a lot of debt, you can delay the pain, delay the necessary changes if you can find a way to borrow more money. But that just means that ultimately you're going to have to make bigger changes. And it ultimately means the people who loaned you money are going to lose even more because now they've made you additional loans. They've extended even more credit to somebody who already can't repay the money that has already been borrowed. So that's really what the Fed is promising to do is to cut rates. And again, it's going to do more QE. In fact, the balance sheet now was down. They put the numbers out every Thursday. So you can look at the Fed balance sheet. It's still slightly better than $3.8 trillion, $3.85 trillion rather, just above that. And I don't even think that we're going to get below 3.8. I mean, maybe we will. We're not going to come anywhere near 3.5. The Fed started this at 4.5. But before they get to 3.5, I mean, probably before they even get much below 3.8, if they even get down to 3.8, they're going to reverse the process and go in the other direction. Because as I've been saying, rate cuts aren't going to do anything. I mean, it's not going to matter if they're going to cut rates from two and a half, two and a quarter down to two, or even down to one, or even all the way back down to zero. It's not going to matter. Rates are still really low. And so making them even lower is not going to be enough to reflate this bubble. This is the biggest bubble that has ever been blown in the history of bubbles. And a 200 basis point, 250 basis point rate cut ain't going to cut it. They're going to need massive quantitative easing. The problem is that's not going to do it either because the amount of QE that's going to be required is going to produce an overdose. And remember, that is what the bond market still hasn't figured out, although there was a little bit of a sign of that today because early this morning, even as the 10-year yield was making new lows and people were buying the 10-year, the 30-year actually was positive. And that spread that I've been talking about, the gap between the 30-year and the 10-year is the widest it's been in, I don't know how many months or how many years, but remember, I talked about that spread and it's really starting to to move in the direction that I said. And what that shows is that bond traders are beginning to sense the inflationary implications of what the Fed is going to be doing, and they don't want to hold on to 30-year bonds. The crazy thing is they even want to hold on to 10-year bonds. And I do think that by the time the Fed actually gets around to cutting interest rates, there's a good chance that the bond market's going to sell off. Because remember, we've had a huge rally in bonds on the anticipation that the Fed would cut rates. Well, buy the rumor, sell the fact. Once they do cut rates, I think the bond market can sell off 
but also if people perceive the inflationary threat that the Fed is going to unleash. I mean, right now, nobody's worried about that. Oil prices, again, continue to plunge. I mean, look at crude oil again today, down another almost two bucks. We're down at 51.70 in the price of oil. You know, we had got up to close to $67 a barrel back in April. And so here we are now all the way down, getting close to 51, right? This is exactly what the Fed wants to see so they can pretend that, you know, there's not enough inflation. Uh, but the reason that oil prices are falling is because of demand, particularly in North America, the United States. The U.S. economy is rapidly going into recession, and so that is uh, causing a buildup of unsold oil, and that's causing the price to go down. But I think once the Fed actually does cut rates, uh, and if the dollar responds the way I think it will, if the dollar tanks, and it was very weak the last couple of days, the dollar index actually this morning traded back below 97 after having traded above uh, you know 98 uh, last week. But we rebounded again today, I think maybe on the optimism of some type of trade deal. Uh, but I think the trend now looks to me that it's down in the dollar. But it should accelerate down as we get these Fed rate cuts. And when that happens, that should spill over into the bond market. Because if the dollar is going to lose value, then Treasury should lose value too. Because all treasuries are, are obligations for future payments of dollars. And so if the dollar is losing value today, it's losing value even faster tomorrow, right? The only thing worse than having a dollar today is having a U.S. dollar paid to you in 10 years or in 30 years in the case of a 30-year treasury. So ultimately, if we get stagflation, which I think we're going to have, if we have uh, inflation and recession at the same time, this is not a favorable market for bonds. And as I've been saying, that has been the shock absorber of every recession. Uh, overly indebted American consumers and corporations and governments have been rewarded with a reduction in the cost of servicing their debts during a recession, and that has mitigated the severity of the recession. Well, the next recession, debtors are going to be punished because the cost of making payments on their debts is going to go up along with the cost of everything else. The cost of living is going to go up. That's really what we're going to see uh, impacted by the next round of quantitative easing. It's not the stock market, right? It's going to be the supermarket where people see prices going up. Not their uh, financial assets, but real assets. All the inflation that was supposedly MIA when the Fed did QEs 1, 2, and 3, well, it's all coming back in spades uh, when they do QE4. Now, another anecdotal piece of evidence that I saw on the U.S. economy had to do with the automobile market, although we did get a little bit better than expected auto sales coming out this week. But I read an article regarding the month of May, and the article pointed out that new cars sat on the showroom floor for more days in May, this May, than in any other May since 2009. And of course, in 2009, we were in the Great Recession. Yet, you know, it's taking as long or took as long to sell a new car this May as it did that May in 2009. Doesn't jive with a, a strong economy. In fact, look at the, the housing numbers that came out. The uh, uh, mortgage applications were actually down today, 2% uh, on the week for um, uh, applications to buy new homes. That despite the fact that mortgage rates have plunged. And so normally you would expect consumers, home buyers to take advantage of a big drop in mortgage rates to buy houses, but they're not doing it. And so if plunging mortgage prices 
won't get people into the housing market. What will? Well, maybe plunging housing prices, right? Housing prices have to go down. It's not the mortgage at this point. The housing prices are now so high that even cheap mortgages isn't enough to allow anybody to buy. So the prices have to come down, and that's a huge problem if a house is your asset and it's or your biggest asset or your only asset in the case of a lot of homeowners. And of course, it's a big problem for the lenders if the value of the collateral that you loan money against is plunging, and now the borrower decides not to pay. All that happened the last time, and it's going to happen again the next time. But the other thing that was very interesting about Powell's statement yesterday morning was not just that the Fed was going to act appropriately to sustain the uh, expansion, but he specifically referenced uh, quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, and he said that we should no longer... Uh, refer to these policies as unconventional, meaning that it's now conventional. This is now the norm. And this is a huge change. Because remember, and I have pointed this out many, many times on this podcast, the only reason we did not get the dollar plunge that I had been anticipating following uh, QE1, 2, and 3 is because the Fed was able to convince the markets that these unconventional policies were a one-time event, that they were an emergency measure, that it was something that the Fed was only doing because of the severity of the financial crisis, an event that you know hadn't happened in 100 years or was the, just a crazy thing that happened that nobody could have anticipated, but it was so severe that we had to resort to these unconventional policies uh, to handle an unconventional emergency but that once this emergency was over, then we would go back to more conventional policies and we would not do this again. And because everybody believed that, right, that, well, they're going to normalize interest rates, right, once this unconventional policy is no longer needed, uh, they're going to unwind their huge balance sheet once the unconventional policy is no longer needed. It was the anticipation of that, the normalization, the balance sheet reduction that, that, that kept the dollar going up that kept people believing that, hey, the Fed did it right. They were able to do this unconventional policy one time and they saved the economy. They saved the world. These guys are heroes. These are geniuses. But if they have to go back down to zero, if they have to expand the balance sheet again so that the balance sheet gets bigger than it was before they started to shrink it, well, A, that's a pretty much an acknowledgement that the policy was a complete failure, which is why they have to do it again. Right. If it was a success, they wouldn't have to do it again. But if Powell is now saying, well, this is no longer uh, unconventional. This is not the policy that we re- that we use when we have a crisis, a financial crisis. Powell is talking about going back to zero and doing more quantitative easing just if the economy slows down, just if there's a threat to the economy uh, from weakness overseas if the tariffs may derail the expansion. I mean, why would we have to resort to unconventional monetary policy if this is just business as usual? If we're just going to have a normal recession, I mean, we've had plenty of recessions before the Great Recession of 2008 that did not require quantitative easing, that did not require 0% interest rates. Now, if we're just going to have another normal recession and we're not even in one yet technically, why does the Fed all of a sudden want to go back to emergency measures? Why does it want to take the unconventional and make it conventional? Because it wasn't unconventional before. It, 
it was the only option they had because the amount of debt is now so much bigger than it's ever been. We have inflated a bubble far larger than anything in the past that this is where we are. And this is not uh, unconventional. This is business as usual. The Fed is never going to be able to shrink its balance sheet. The Fed is monetizing government debt. The Fed is doing exactly what Ben Bernanke denied it was doing when Congress asked point blank, are you monetizing the debt back in 2010 when the Tea Party actually gave a damn about the debt and they recognize that if the Fed is monetizing it, then it makes it even easier for the government to go deeper into debt. Well, that is what they are doing. They are never going to shrink this balance sheet. It's going to grow in perpetuity. And they're never going to normalize interest rates. The peak this time was two and a half. Now we're going back down to zero. If they ever lift them above zero again, they're not going to get anywhere near two and a half, right? They keep lowering the bar uh, every time because the amount of debt keeps growing all the time. And of course, in order to do this, um, Powell has to pretend that there's no inflation, right? Which is what he's doing. And, you know, speaking about lowering the bar, that's where the Fed constantly moves the bar. But in the other direction, they raise the bar when it comes to inflation and when it's a problem. Because remember, initially, the Fed had a mandate and that mandate was price stability. And I don't even think that was a good mandate because before we had the Fed, prices were falling. And I think falling prices are better than stable prices. I mean, if you're a consumer, you want to buy stuff cheaper. So I'd rather buy stuff cheaper in the future than pay the same price in the future that I'm paying today, right? Especially if I can't afford something today. I hope the price goes down and maybe I'll be able to afford it in, in the future. So uh, that represented a move in the wrong direction when the Fed said, we, our goal is stable prices. We want to stop prices from going down. We want to hold them stable. So their initial objective was zero inflation, no inflation. That changed. I forget exactly when, but all of a sudden they started talking about having a 2% inflation ceiling, right? Well, we just have to make sure that inflation stays below 2%. 2% is the ceiling. So, you know, instead of stable prices, right, we're, we're, we're willing to let prices go up, but we're not going to let them go up by more than 2% a year, right? And then at some point along the way, this is more recent, that 2% ceiling turned into a target, right? Instead of being a level that, hey, if we get up to 2%, that's too high. We need to bring it back down. All of a sudden, 2% became the target that we need to make sure inflation is 2%. See, before, if you have a 2% ceiling and inflation is 1%, everything is great because one is below the ceiling. You only had to worry about inflation if it got close to the ceiling, right? Well, all of a sudden, the Fed is like, no, 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 we're worried about inflation if it's not at the ceiling because the ceiling became a target. Well, now that ceiling has become a floor, right? Now, Powell is not saying we have a 2% inflation floor. He's saying we have a goal of symmetrical inflation. He used that word again yesterday. Our goal is symmetrical 2% inflation. What does that mean? What that means is that we need inflation above 2% for a long time because it was below 2% for a long time. So the 2% ceiling, which became a target, is now a floor, right? So the Fed is constantly moving up the bar 
on what it where it wants inflation. And the whole time it's doing this, it's complaining we don't have enough inflation, right? It obviously not only wants inflation, but is boiling the frog, right? Preparing the markets for much higher inflation. Well, of course, the Fed is going to end up getting far more than it bargains for when it comes to inflation, because we're going to, that 2% is not just going to be a floor. It's going to be like a launch pad and the inflationary rocket is going sky high. And that's what's going to crush the dollar. And that's what's going to crush the bond market. Now, I got to talk about this yesterday when I was on uh, Fox Business with, with Liz Clayman. And I got to talk about this rate cut that is now imminent. But also, Liz was able to play a little snippet uh, from the last time I was on her show. Um, I'm not actually sure if it was the last time. But I was this, this was December I was on the show two days before the Fed raised rates in December. And in fact, I put the entire clip because uh, that was just one segment. I was on the show for a lot longer than that. But I actually put the clip up on my YouTube channel so you can see now the entire interview when Liz was asking me what the Fed was going to do in December. I basically said it doesn't matter, you know, because if they hike in December, they're done. It is the last rate hike of the of the cycle and the very next thing they're going to do is cut rates. Now, to my knowledge, nobody else made that forecast. There wasn't a single forecaster out there that said that the December rate hike was the last one and that the next move would be to cut rates. Now, I think there were some people in the very minority. I think, you know, 90% of the forecasters still believe that, you know, the Fed was going to have three to four rate hikes in 2009. There were some people who thought, and they were in the minority, that the Fed might pause after the December hike just to wait and see before it continued to raise rates further. But nobody said that they were done hiking. And nobody said that the next thing that they do with respect to rates would be a reduction. I am the only one who said that. And again, you know, if you go back and look at the environment, why was I so sure in December that the Fed was done hiking because the market was tanking. I could see the tentacles. I saw that the market was going to keep falling and I couldn't imagine what would stop it other than the Fed. When the Fed basically said that quantitative tightening is on autopilot and we're going to keep on raising rates, given what I was seeing in the economy and the housing market and the auto market, so that's it. You know, and I knew that the Fed was going to have to take away those rate hikes and they did. And that's what caused the market to rally. Well, the market started selling off again. And now, just as I predicted, the Fed is now coming out and saying, we're going to cut rates, right? Because now they had to come back with more because the sugar rush that the markets had from stopping future rate hikes was wearing off. And so now the Fed has to come back with, with more drugs and now it's cutting rates. But it's not just talking about cutting rates. They're going to actually have to cut rates. But I don't think the rally that we're going to get this time is going to be as large as the rally that we got last time from the first rate cut. The markets are going to sink again, and then the Fed is going to have to do more rate cuts until it has to go to zero. And they're going to have to do more QE because there is not enough stimulus left to revive this bubble or revive this economy. But that doesn't mean the Fed is going to stop trying. Of course, they're going to try, but they are going to fail. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, and I've looked at some of these comments, hey, Peter, you know, it's not right for you to claim that, you know, you said that the December rate hike was the last rate hike because you said all the rate hikes were the last rate hikes. And that's actually not true. So I figured I would go over what I was saying. And if you don't believe me, you can go back and you can listen uh, to some of the old podcasts. But 
before the Fed raised rates for the first time, when they hadn't raised them at all, and, and when they really started talking about rate hikes, it was at the end of 2014, right? Everybody started to get prepared for the Fed to raise rates. And, and that's why the dollar really started to rally. It was rallying in 2014 and all through 2015 because everybody was convinced the Fed was going to raise rates. And what I said at the time was, I think they're bluffing. I don't think they're going to raise rates at all because they're afraid of pricking the bubble, right? And I also said they're afraid that if they raise rates, and things turn around that they might have to cut rates and they'll lose whatever credibility they have left. Well, we went through all of 2015 until December without a rate hike. Now, at the end of 2014, almost every major forecaster out there said we would have three to four rate hikes in 2015. They were all wrong. Now, I said we wouldn't have any. Well, I was wrong too, but I was a lot closer than anybody else because I said we wouldn't have any and we ended up having one. So I was off by one. Most other forecasters predicted three or four rate hikes. So I was actually closer to reality than anybody else. So I still think that's pretty good. And in fact, when it came to December, I thought even then, if you go back to the podcast, I said, look, the Fed might actually hike now because they bocked themselves into a corner here. I mean, people are going to be so worried if they don't hike. I mean, they went the whole year and they didn't even hike. So I kind of thought that the Fed didn't want to hike, but they felt that they had to based on the box that they had placed themselves in because they kept talking about a hike, but not actually doing it. So after they did the December rate hike, I said, okay, I think it's one and done. And you know what? I was almost right because after that rate hike, the markets tanked. And of course, the minute the markets tanked, the Fed backed away. And remember, when the, when the Fed raised rates, in December of 2015, everybody said, we're going to have three to four hikes in 2016, except me. I said no hikes in 2016. And again, I was the closest. In fact, by the Price is Rights rule, I'm the only one that wasn't disqualified because everybody else was over. I was the only one that was under. I said zero and we got one. But you know what? When did we get that one rate hike? In December of 2016, after Donald Trump had won the election. And that is the only reason we got that hike. I am convinced that had Hillary Clinton won that election, Janet Yellen would not have raised interest rates again. It would have been one and done. In fact, we would already be at zero. We would already be, be doing QE. The only reason that the Fed was able to raise rates was one, initially, uh, Yellen didn't give a damn about anything blowing up on Trump's watch. So she started raising rates. But it was the enthusiasm in the stock market and in the economy uh, and all this fiscal stimulus that basically gave the Fed cover to raise rates. And if you go back to my podcasts and all the rate hikes that took place since Donald Trump was president, every single time before they hiked on this show, I said they're probably going to hike every single time. Why did I think that was because they were doing it? I mean, I, I gave up thinking they were going to stop hiking because I can see the markets and what was going on that the Fed believed, particularly Jerome Powell, he believed that he could keep raising rates. And so I never called the end of any rate hike after that uh, second hike because once Trump was elected, and in fact, be, once Trump won the election, right? At that point, if you go back to before the December rate hike, I, I then thought that the Fed could hike. I only thought they weren't going to hike earlier in the year. But by the time we got to the December meeting, I was saying, yeah, they're probably going to raise rates in December. So I changed my mind on what I thought the Fed would do once I saw the reaction in the markets to the surprise victory 
of Donald Trump. And so the only time, the only time I ever went out on a limb and said, they're done, there are no more hikes, this is the last one, was the December hike. In fact, I titled my podcast there, The Rate Hike That Breaks the Camel's Back, or something like that, because I knew the Fed had gone one too many, and that was it. And then they were done hiking, which is exactly what happened. So I should be getting a little bit more credit than I am in the investment community for having said that. But again, most people want to dismiss me. Oh, Peter Schiff, he's just a perma bear. He doesn't know what he's talking about. They don't want to acknowledge uh, that I got this right. And they also don't want to acknowledge a lot of other things that I got right because I understood that the Fed was stuck. I understood that they couldn't keep raising rates and that they would look for an excuse to cut them. The vast majority of people out there on Wall Street were clueless because they didn't understand the the predicament, because they didn't understand the economy or the economics, and they still don't understand it. Everybody thinks this is going to be great. Oh, the Fed's going to cut rates. Everything's going to be fine. They're going to save us. They're the cavalry. They're coming in. We'll avoid the recession, right? People can buy the stock market. Oh, we can buy the bond market. You know, everybody is wrong. But you're starting to see a little bit of a movement, right, into the price of gold, right? Slowly but surely, look around the world. Look what's going on in Russia. Look what's going on in China. Look at other countries, uh, and not just these big countries, smaller countries in Southeast Asia are building up their gold reserves. They're trying to come up with uh, bilateral trade arrangements that circumvent the U.S. dollar. They are preparing. They can read the writing on the wall because when the Fed goes back to zero, when they go back to quantitative easing, they are never going to be able to pretend that this is uh, an emergency measure. They've already said that this policy is now conventional. This is now the norm. The United States is an engine of inflation. The Federal Reserve is an engine of debt monetization to enable ever bigger government. Doesn't matter what happens to inflation, it's going to keep on going. And of course, when you got the political aspects here, when you got the socialists that are going to be able to come into power, you know, in 2020, because this whole thing is going to be blamed on free market capitalism, then government is going through the roof and it's all going to be financed with a printing press. You know, there are a lot of countries that have done this. I mean, we're not going to be the only country that has an economic problem and has a lot of debt and then turns to socialism and they run the printing presses and you get massive inflation. That's where we're headed. The gold market is just getting a whiff of it. Uh, but we've got a long way to go. In fact, Don Luskin uh, penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. You know, I used to argue with Don Luskin quite a bit back in the day when I used to be on the Kudlow show on CNBC, and he was one of Larry Kudlow's frequent guests, and I would spar with him. In fact, there's some pretty good uh, shows on uh, YouTube uh, that show me arguing with, with Don Luskin back in 2006, 2007. Luskin was one of the real uh, cheerleaders of the bubble economy back then. He thought everything was great. He was the one that, you know, said to me after the subprime bubble popped, and he said, Peter, okay, so all the skeletons have come out of the closet and nothing has happened. It's no big deal. So when are you going to start saying, the, stop saying the sky is falling? It doesn't matter. Subprime is a tiny problem. The economy is great. The housing market is great. There's nothing to worry about, right? He said that, you know, in 06 or 07. So he was completely clueless back then, and he is equally clueless now. But his op-ed was titled, Trump wants to cut interest rates. Powell should do it anyway. And he was arguing why the Fed should cut interest rates. And one of his main points is that the market was already signaling 
that rates were too high, that if you look at the bond market and the bond market was selling off, that it really wouldn't be the Fed manipulating interest rates lower. The Fed would simply be following the markets, that the markets were already moving rates lower. And so if the Fed simply reacted to that, that it really wouldn't be the Fed driving interest rates artificially lower. It would be the Fed simply following rates down, which the market was setting down. And I've already talked on this podcast why that is wrong. The markets are not leading. The markets are anticipating what the Fed is going to do. See, if the markets knew that the Fed was not going to simply cut rates because there was a recession, right, then rates would not be falling. In fact, they'd probably be rising if it wasn't for the fact that the markets have the Fed's number. The markets know that the Fed has no stomach for a recession, has no stomach for a bear market, and they know the Fed is going to cut rates and do QE because the economy is moving to the recession and because we're in a bear market. Now, the Fed is denying all this. The Fed is saying the economy is great. Well, a lot of people know that it's not. And so the only reason that traders are bidding up bond prices is because they are anticipating the policy mistake that the Fed is going to make. Now, they don't realize it's a mistake, but they are correct in anticipating what the Fed's going to do. So to say that it's okay for the Fed to lower rates because it's simply following the market, that's not what's happening. The market is simply doing what it believes the Fed is going to do. It wants to front run the Fed. It knows the Fed is going to cut rates because it knows the economy is in recession or going into recession and the Fed is in denial. So they're simply trying to front run that trade. They want to position themselves ahead of the Fed. It's not that the market is taking rates down. The market is anticipating the Fed taking rates down. They're anticipating the intervention into the free market and they are correct to do that. Where they are wrong is the belief that this is going to be good for long-term bonds. It's not. It's going to be a disaster for long-term bonds. People who are buying bonds are going to lose a lot more real purchasing power than people who are buying U.S. stocks. I mean, I think they're both going to lose, but I think the losses will be greatest in the bond market. But the argument that Don Luskin is trying to make is flawed because he doesn't understand the reason that the markets are moving rates lower. It's not a signal that they should be lower. It's simply a validation that the markets understand how the Fed is going to respond to the recession, that it is still in denial we are headed to. Now, despite the rally on Wall Street today, one segment that did not enjoy the, the rise were the retailers. A lot of retail stocks really got beat up again today. Uh, retailers will be hit particularly hard by the recession, right? Not only are people going to be losing their jobs, uh, but the tariffs are there and prices are going to be rising due to inflation. So the retailers are particularly vulnerable. The XRT, which is an index of retail stocks, dropped by about 1.5% today. But one of the lone exceptions in the sector was Walmart which rose by almost 2%, 1.8%. They had their annual shareholder meeting today, and Bernie Sanders was there to speak. And he was there to encourage uh, Walmart to raise its own minimum wage, right? The lowest salary that it pays to any of its employees from about $11 an hour, which I think is its minimum now, which is well above the federal minimum wage. Uh, but Bernie Sanders doesn't think that's enough. He wants Walmart to, to pay a minimum of $15 an hour. And here's a quote. I think um, Sanders was able to address uh, shareholders for about three minutes there, right? And so one of the things that he said 
is he says that the wages that are being paid are so low that many employees are forced to rely on government programs. And he said that American people are sick and tired of subsidizing the greed of some of the largest and most profitable corporations in America. He basically said that Walmart is paying its workers starvation wages. Right Now, first of all, none of the employees at Walmart are starving. And to the extent that you're earning $11 an hour, you're, you're going to be able to eat. But the idea that um, Walmart needs to pay all of its workers $15 an hour, and if it can't do that, what? It shouldn't employ them, which is basically what uh, Sanders is saying, because they are a profitable company, right? You're talking about a shareholder meeting. You're talking about shareholders who have invested their money in Walmart and they want to earn a dividend. And in order for Walmart to pay dividends, they need to make a profit. And the dividend needs to be high enough to uh, compensate for the risk of being a shareholder in a company because there are a lot of risks. A lot of stuff can go wrong. And so you need to be compensated for taking that risk. Uh, And so you need to have a good dividend and you need to have a profit. And you can't have a profit if the goal is to simply overpay your workers. But, you know, um, Sanders tries to make the argument that the reason that several uh, Walmart employees are on government programs is because Walmart pays them such a low wage. Well, the reality is Walmart is paying these workers a higher wage than any other company in America was willing to pay. Now, how do I know that? Well, because that's the job they chose, right? If there's anybody who is working at Walmart and they're getting $11 an hour, if there was another company that was willing to pay them $12 an hour, they would probably quit their Walmart job and take the other job. Or they would go to their boss and they would say, hey, I just got offered $12 an hour by your competitor Uh, Do you want to match that rate or I'm going to quit and take the other job, right? I mean, that's what employees are able to do. They're able to shop around and they take the best deal, which in the case of a worker is the highest wage that you can get. Now, sometimes you don't take the highest wage because there are other things that you consider, like the working environment, the conditions, the stress, the type of job. So is the extra money worth the added stress, or maybe there's a longer commute. So even though I'm paid more, I'm actually working longer because it's further from my house. So there are a lot of other factors, but in general, the employee is going to choose the most lucrative employment package that he can find. And if somebody has accepted a job from Walmart, it means that Walmart was the best deal that they could get. So rather than criticizing Walmart, for paying its employees $11 an hour. It should be congratulating them for being the top uh, top bidder for these particular workers. And if Walmart wasn't there, then they would have had to have taken their second best job offer, which might have been $10 an hour, who knows? And so then they would need even more government benefits. So because Walmart is paying its workers more than those workers could get anyplace else, That means the burden on the taxpayer is actually lower than it would have been. Maybe they qualify for less government benefits uh, than would have been the case, but for Walmart's ability or willingness to employ these workers at the highest wage they can find. Now, of course, I don't like anybody getting government benefits. I don't believe in welfare. I think if people are 
in trouble, uh, they should turn to private charity. And I think people should be voluntarily uh, giving their money uh, to people who are in need rather than have government steal that money at gunpoint and give it out to people who they feel uh, need the money. In many cases, they don't need the money. They're just buying their votes uh, with the money. I think private charity is a lot more honest uh, than, than government welfare. But that's a, a, another another podcast, and I think I've, I've, I've uh, touched on that before. But what I really wanted to stick to is the idea that Walmart is underpaying its workers. It is not. If it was underpaying its workers, they would all quit. In a free market, you can't underpay your workers because there's competition. They will get a better job if there's one available. And if there's none available, then it means that uh, you've got you know, they've got the best job at their, their current employer. But if Sanders says, hey, we want to force Walmart to, to have a minimum wage of $15 an hour, what they're really telling Walmart is we don't want you hiring somebody unless they can contribute at least $15 an hour to the bottom line of your shareholders. They want to basically have a floor to say, if the worker cannot contribute $15 of productivity, then don't hire them. Well, if you're concerned about people having to get government benefits, and if you want to tell Walmart to not hire people who have productivity of under $15 an hour, what happens if those workers can't get another job? What if the only job they were able to land was the Walmart job? And now, basically, Bernie Sanders is saying, well, we'd rather Walmart not hire them at all if they're not going to pay them $15 an hour. So now they've got no money coming in. So if, if Sanders is worried about these Walmart employees getting government benefits and how much that costs taxpayers, well, it's going to cost taxpayers a lot more. These workers are going to qualify for even more government benefits if they're unemployed, if they have no job at all. See, Sanders wants to believe that... Walmart is just going to overpay its workers. That, hey, let's just raise the pay to $15 an hour. That's not what they're going to do. If they raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, they would try to eliminate from their payrolls all workers who weren't worth $15 an hour. That's exactly what they're doing now with $11 an hour. You think Walmart is hiring people that they think are worth $7 an hour and paying them $11 an hour? No, they're not. They are not hiring those people. They are trying to find ways to automate. They are investing in technology. They are outsourcing. They are not hiring people who have skills that are very, very low. If you're only worth $5 an hour or $6 an hour or $7 an hour, Walmart has made a decision to exclude all those people from employment. Why? Because of the politics, right? It doesn't look good. They don't like the optics, right? They don't want to be accused of paying people low wages. So what they end up doing is excluding from employment lower skilled people. They now have a bar, right? You have to have at least $11 an hour worth of skills before Walmart will hire you. And all Bernie Sanders wants to do is force Walmart to raise that bar even higher so that now the people who are worth 12, 13, and $14 an hour, they're unemployed too. One more thing I wanted to uh, mention before I wrap this podcast up. I know some people had ordered on my website on Shift Books. They had ordered copies of my father's book, The Federal Mafia. And some people are still waiting for their copies. And the reason is because I was in Puerto Rico and I was not able to sign them. Well, I am now back in Connecticut where the books were kept and where they're being shipped. And so I'm able to sign those copies. So if you've been waiting for a copy of my father's book, The Federal Mafia, 
Uh, it'll be in the mail shortly. And there are some additional books that I am going to be signing. We still have a supply of the book, The Federal Mafia. So if you want to get a copy while supplies last, these books are hard to find. In fact, The Federal Mafia is the only book other than Fanny Hill to ever be banned by the U.S. government. Of course, Fanny Hill was banned a long time ago, and it was because it was considered to be pornographic. Well, my father's book wasn't pornographic at all. In fact, it was a book that shined a light of truth on the uh, Internal Revenue Service. That's who my father is referring to when he says the federal mafia. Uh, but uh, he was banned from buying, selling that book, uh, a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, but nonetheless, it happened. So if you want to own a piece of history, but also learn a lot. I mean, I'm not, you know, when anybody buys my dad's book, The Federal Mafia, I always want to make sure that nobody actually follows his advice to stop paying income taxes. I am not advocating that people stop paying income taxes unless they want to move to Puerto Rico. And then, of course, they can stop paying income taxes with the blessing of the IRS. But I am not advocating that you fight the government the way my father was recommending it when he wrote that book. I'm telling people that they should get a copy of the Federal Mafia simply to read it, to have an understanding of my father's perspective on the income tax and the Constitution and, and why the government was collecting the tax in violation of law. I think there's a lot of economic history in there, and you can also learn a lot about uh, what my father went through uh, you know, during the time that he was fighting the government. A lot of his story is written in the federal mafia. So again, while supplies last, you can go to shiftbooks.com and get an autographed copy. Now, of course, it's not autographed by my father. He passed away a few years ago, but it will be autographed by me. And there are very few federal mafias that are autographed by me. In fact, the only ones that are autographed by me are the few that I've been able to sell. I mean, I don't remember anybody presenting me with one to sign. I'm not really sure. There's probably a few of them out there that were autographed by my dad because I think he used to sign, uh, sign them for people. But there's not that many that are, that are autographed by me. So that makes it a little bit unique. Also, again, I still have a supply. We are running out, but we haven't run completely out yet of my favorite little book that my father wrote, The Kingdom of Malts. Uh, which is a very appropriate book to have now, given that inflation is about to really start running rampant. You know, when my father first wrote The Kingdom of Malts, uh, you know, the book sold for $2.50. I'm selling it for $25 inflation, but the book was about inflation uh, and how the government causes it, because inflation is a very misunderstood word in the English language. In fact, it's probably even less understood now than it was in the 1970s. So it's probably even more appropriate uh, that people read the uh, the Kingdom of Malts now than it was then. But, you know, before I started selling that book, it was selling for almost $200. In fact, I think some copies were selling for more than $200 on eBay and Amazon and places like that. And so since I've sold uh, quite a few of these books, the prices come down. But still, I think for a brand new copy, remember, the, the copies that I'm selling are brand new. They're not used. They're in their original box that they were put in 20 years ago and where they were stored, and I got them out of a storage facility a few years ago, and I had them shipped to my house in Connecticut, and those are the last remaining copies of the, of the reprint. This is the reprint from 1999. The original printing was in the early 1970s. I don't have any of those. Uh, if anybody has a brand new copy of that, that'd be uh, a nice little collector's item. Uh, but these are brand new copies uh, from 1999, the second printing of that book. Uh, and so while surprised that, so you go, if you want to get either of those books, and I think there's a deal if you buy them both together, uh, but it's shiftbooks.com 
is the website. And I'm here to sign them. So anybody who orders them now, they should get their signed copy relatively quickly uh, because I'm in Connecticut and I'm able to sign the books as the orders come in. (music) 